This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Health Check. In this fortnightly podcast series on Wednesdays, The Straits Times guides you to healthier living and debunks the myths with expert guests. I'm Joyce Teo and my co-host is Ernest Lewis. Today, our special guest is Dr. Michael Lim. He's the medical director of MWH Heart, Stroke and Cancer Centre. Dr. Lim is also the honorary president of the Asian Society of Cardiology. And he's here to tell us more about how we can change our lifestyles to prevent cardiovascular disease like heart attacks or strokes. So hi, Dr. Lim. Good morning. Hi. So you've shared that it's really very difficult to get a heart attack or stroke, right, if we do the right things. But, you know, these diseases remain top killers here and around the world. So is there something that we're not doing right or not doing at all? Cardiovascular diseases are mostly caused by either unhealthy lifestyles or you have risk factors like high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking or high cholesterol. And if you really sit down and think about it, most of it is actually quite preventable. And if we know and understand the mechanism of a heart attack or stroke, then I'm quite sure that it will not be too difficult for most people to change their lifestyles to prevent all these events from happening. You mean something that they can't see? Yes. So if we look at the mechanism of a heart attack, many people think that, well, if you eat a lot of fatty foods or you have unhealthy lifestyle, then you get blocked arteries and eventually you get a heart attack or mm-hmm. stroke. But actually, that's really not quite it, eh? You'll be surprised if I tell you that people do not get heart attack or stroke from severe narrowing of the arteries. So that sounds like a contra yeah, uh, yeah. to what people will usually say. So actually, if you, I will try to explain it to you in a very simple way. Okay. So let's say, for example, if you have a blister on your skin, there's fluid under the layer of the skin. And let's say you push the skin, obviously the skin will break. It's like as if you cut your hand and the usual mechanism will be that the body will form a clot to try to repair it. So in the same way, if you have cholesterol, fatty material in the skin or in the lining, it's as if it's a skin, lining of the internal channel of the artery. And let's say you're very angry or decided to do very vigorous exercise, the flow across the narrow channel may actually be so forceful that it may cause that lining to tear and expose the fatty material to the blood. Mm. Now, when that happens, the body behaves as it usually does. It will form a clot to try to seal that. And actually, that clot is really the mechanism of a heart attack. And for many strokes, likewise, that is a mechanism as well. Right. So that is a trigger. It's like a trigger. Yes, absolutely correct. Okay. So if you think about it, then actually it's not so difficult. Well, if you can imagine that if you can take measures to prevent that event from happening, that means, in other words, the lining will not tear, then theoretically, you will not get a heart attack. And it's quite difficult to get a stroke as well. What are the measures that people should take then, once we understand that this mechanism and how it actually works better? The bottom line actually is that if you have soft material inside the vessel, that makes it liable to rupture. But... If you don't have soft material there, actually the artery, the lining will not tear. So if the first thing you need to manage will be your cholesterol. And I think cholesterol is something that most people seem to know something about it. Many people are so-called experts about it. So I think really in terms of food choices, 
most people do actually know what kind of foods to avoid and what foods are safe. Uh, but there's actually another very important thing and I tell that to all my patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the mechanism is a clot, so really one of the most simple measures that people can actually take in their daily lifestyle to prevent a heart attack is to drink lots of liquid a day. As a rule of thumb, I tell my patients, why don't you try to drink at least two litres of liquid a day, be it water, tea, uh, soup, whatever. Because if your blood is not so thick, as we put in layman's term, Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't get a heart attack so easily. And that's the reason why you often read in the newspapers, somebody goes to sleep and then next morning he's passed on because of a heart attack. Because you don't drink very much after your dinner and when you're sleeping, obviously, most people don't wake up to drink water. And by the next morning, early hours morning, that's where you will be most dehydrated and that's where the propensity to form a clot is the highest. So that's why if you make this habit of trying to drink at least two litres, I think that's the cheapest way to prevent a heart attack and stroke. Okay, and even for seniors as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So Dr. Lim, you were talking about cholesterol, right? That's interesting because some people, they still believe their chances of getting heart disease is low if they have high levels of good cholesterol. But you mentioned that studies show that this is not the case, right? Can you tell us more about that? So 20 over years ago, if you told people that HDL is the good cholesterol and you should do whatever you need to raise it, that was the so-called biblical truth at that point of time. And you said otherwise, you'll be considered a heretic. (laughs) But in the last more than 10 years, there has been at least four large randomized controlled trials, that means very well-designed trials, which have used various methods of drugs to elevate the levels of the HDL, or so-called good cholesterol. And very interestingly, even though they increased it by a 100%, there was actually no benefit with respect to the heart. Mm. So in other words, all the efforts that we put in to try to increase the HDL did not translate to a real effect in the patient. And if you hear the, attend the talks and conferences by one of the leading cardiologists in the US called Valentin Fuster, he tells you that if anybody tells you HDL is a good cholesterol, this concept is completely obsolete. So actually, although people still use the word good cholesterol HDL, but actually Mm. it is completely obsolete concept because it doesn't really help you. So what you really need to focus on is the LDL Mm -hmm. or so-called the bad cholesterol. I'll give you an example. Mm. A patient came to me, his LDL was like more than 200. He had seen a doctor, had self-checked. His vessels were as clean as a whistle. Then he asked the doctor, if my vessels were as clean as a whistle, even though my LDL is more than 200, then do I really need to take a statin or cholesterol-lowering tablet? So he came to me to try to find the answer. So I told him that we used to think that everybody who's got bad cholesterol, all of it's bad. But then suddenly we realised that, hey, you know, it's not that everybody's equally bad. It's like, you know, criminals, you have one end, you have uh, people who just pick pockets. The other end, you have terrorists, for example. So in a way, the LDL is like that. We have two types. If you can put it very simplistically, you can divide the LDL into two broad groups. One is what we call the small particle LDL cholesterol. Some people call it the small dense LDL. And the other is a big particle cholesterol. Now, what it means, if I try to give you an analogy, is like someone on a motorcycle and someone on a bus. 
The one on the motorcycle can pass through a small alley and get from one side of a block to the other side. The big bus cannot pass through the small alley. So similarly, in the blood vessel, the wall, the small particle can pass through the gaps between the cells, but the big ones would have trouble getting to it. So what it means is that if you are genetically born with LDL, which are large particles, actually you may not need to take the statins mm. and you may actually just be good by just watching the diet and living a healthy lifestyle. So for this particular patient, although his LDL was quite high, I did tell him just lifestyle measures, no need to take statins. And mm. some people ask me, what's wrong with taking statins? So if you look at all the literature published, again, different papers, if statins had absolutely no side effects, then obviously I will tell the patient, no problem, you just go ahead and take it, don't worry about it. But the reality is that if you take statins for many years, say more than 10 years, and of larger doses, different papers have different estimates, but it could be as high as 8 to 9 people out of 100 could end up with diabetes as well. So there is this other downside. So I think that's why we need to balance the risks and benefits and advise the patient economy. Nevertheless, LDL becomes is still the main factor mm. that would be very important in terms of causing blockage in the uh, heart and also a contributor to strokes as well. So when you do a health screening, it's important to ask for the differences the breakdowns. Is it possible to ask for the breakdowns in the LDL? Routinely, most doctors will not do these more specific tests mm. to actually look at that. They will not do that. Usually, people will just do the standard total cholesterol, the right. HDL, the LDL, and triglyceride. right? So, unless it's specifically requested for. So, maybe if you have very high cholesterol and you're really not too keen to take tablets, you could discuss this with your doctor to do further testing to help you make a decision as to whether you really want to start on tablets or you do not want to start on tablets. Very insightful stuff, Dr. Lim. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Health Check on Apple's podcast or Google Podcast or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Michael Lim, the Medical Director of MWH Heart, Stroke and Cancer Centre. So, Dr. Lim, diabetes, it's a major risk factor, you know. It's a problem here in Singapore and government takes it very seriously. What else do you think people can do to address this besides what is commonly known already about taking all your siutai and less sugar this, less sugar that and all that? What else can be done? In Singapore, what well, Asians actually, we are not quite the same as a person from, let's say, a Caucasian from Europe or from America. So what's the difference between a person of the same height, same weight, compared to a person from a Caucasian from the Europe or US? There are two major differences. One is that Asians generally, genetically, our pancreas cannot produce insulin so efficiently as compared to a Western counterpart. So that's very important. Secondly, in terms of the distribution of our fat, so for the same size, same weight, ours will be mainly in the visceral area, visceral fat in the organs. Whereas for Caucasian, it's going to be mainly more subcutaneous and less visceral fat. Now, if you have fat around your internal organs, that's not a good thing because it will increase your risk of other problems like hypertension, associated heart disease, etc. So keeping these two things in mind, we will then understand that because our pancreas is not so efficient, 
we can still handle sugar loads, but we may not be able to handle a huge sugar load at one shot, but maybe we should change our lifestyle so that we end up eating more meals, but in smaller quantities. So instead of eating maybe uh, two big meals or three large meals, maybe you want to break up your meals and say six meals, but lower quantities so that you don't have a huge fluctuation in your sugar levels. Mm. So our pancreas is more able to manage that sort of sugar loads. And then obviously, it's good to know what kind of foods that you want to be careful about. Doctor, what about hypertension? That's like a key risk factor as well. So the interesting thing today is that the U.S. has different standards from the rest of the world. So the rest of the world has a certain standard. The U.S. has a certain standard. So the question is that who is right? And obviously, these are all very intelligent people on both sides. And they've actually looked at the evidence as well. But why is there a difference where the US are looking at 130, the rest of the world is looking at 140 before you declare someone as having hypertension? Well, it could be that, again, not every person is the same. But if I can put it in perspective and we sit down and think about it, why do people say that, oh, it must not be 140? Why could it not be like 139, 138, 137? Why is it a magic number? Why must it be 140 or 130? So actually, it's not a hard target, so to speak. It's something that is meant as a guide for the doctors and a target for them to aim at. But blood pressure is never a straight line. It's always fluctuating. And if you take it outside a clinic, inside a clinic, at home, it could all totally be different. But the principle is quite simple. The principle is that if your blood pressure is very high, it could damage your body. And usually the three main organs that are damaged is the brain, the heart, and the kidney. And the first place that you usually will see any damage from poorly controlled blood pressure is the heart. And actually, it's quite simple. So if the pressure is high in the heart, especially the left heart chamber, the body will react in a very simple way. The left upper chamber has a thin wall. So it's like a balloon. If your pressure is high, it will expand and get dilated. The lower chamber is muscular. It pumps blood. So if your blood pressure is very high, it's got to work harder to pump blood out which means it's like you're doing weights. You're doing more than what you usually do and therefore the wall will thicken. So if you see signs of this, it means that this person, you will usually need medication for the blood pressure. So that's one way for where specialists try to make a more considered decision in deciding to start someone on blood pressure pills. But I always tell all my patients, before you even start on your pills... Because blood pressure is such a variable uh, number, Mm -hmm. uh, invest in a home blood pressure monitor. Go and buy one off the shelf. It's not very expensive, maybe $100. Take your blood pressure and check it for a month before you decide that you are hypertensive. And the right and proper way to measure your blood pressure, the right and proper way is that you need to sit on the table in the morning, relax for five minutes, you could read your papers, watch the TV, whatever, wait out for five minutes, then record your pressure. So that's the best way to measure the pressure properly. At what age do you think people should start measuring their blood pressure? Okay, so blood pressure, 90% of blood pressure is called essential blood pressure. In other words, simply put, we don't know the reason. There's no underlying cause for it. 
So if you have a very strong family history, let's say you've got a strong family history, let's say, for example, both your parents have high blood pressure, I think it's not a bad idea that when you go to your GP for maybe a cough, a cold, or flu, just get him to check your blood pressure as well, even though you could be quite young in your 20s or so. So that would be the simplest way for you to figure. But let's say you had a visit to your doctor, it was pretty high, then you would consider buying a home blood pressure monitor and check it yourself. Obviously, that could be used for your other family members as well. What else can people do? Is there any other thing that we should be mindful of besides this? In terms of preventing high blood pressure or risk factors like stroke. Yeah, or, detecting yeah. it early. So I think the other thing is to be actually reduce your salt intake. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, very interesting fact also not known to many people is that the arteries right inside the brain, that means the vessels inside the brain, they are not the same as the vessels in your heart or in your neck. So they have one missing layer which is present in the other arteries but not present in the arteries in the brain. And for that reason, they tend to be be more affected by high blood pressure and diabetes. And therefore, high blood pressure is actually a very important factor for stroke. And I think it's important that it be well controlled. And things like getting enough sleep, taking enough fluids, watching your salts, all those will be very, very helpful in trying to prevent this high blood pressure from affecting your health. Right, plus exercise as well, right? Exercise a very interesting thing because I get this question all the time, how much exercise is adequate or inadequate? And then you read the literature, you probably get even more confused as to what is adequate. But if you look at the published data and you summarize all the major trials on exercise, I can just put it very simply to you. If you look at one group that does no exercise, mm-hmm. one group that does maybe three times a week, two to three times a week, one group that does every day, then who is worse, who is best? So obviously those who know exercise are the worst off. Uh, But interestingly, those with daily exercise are worse off than those who do maybe three times a week. And in fact, they do suffer more injuries. And if you do extreme sports, there's no incremental benefit translated to your overall health as well. So I think by all means exercise, but be mindful that excessive exercise can sometimes be more harmful than helpful. Give it rest and all that. Wear and tear, you've got to allow for recovery of the body as well in between. Absolutely. I mean, you know that latest survey that's published, Singapore is ranked number one in longevity average lifespan of ladies 87 years old. So I'm sure when you reach that age, you want to be able to walk, you want to be able to be free of joint pains. And So I think it's important while we are focused on all this prevention of all these uh, important diseases, we should keep ourselves healthy overall in terms of our joint health and all that as well. Thanks, uh, Dr. Lim, for the very practical tips. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check. We hope you like this latest Healthy Living Tips. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.